wide lodges I ride in this wind On my good horse I call you The media use the term terrorism and yet absolutely completely silent about what it means, how it is defined, who uses the term in what ways and what are the arguments on all sides. From somebody the US is not saying in the 70s that it is legitimate to use force against terrorism. If a state is involved directly or indirectly in an act of terrorism, then it's not an act of terrorism. What's fascinating about the American discourse or discourses, plural, is that the US has been able to have it both ways or three ways or four ways. It has been able to say something to the American public and use a completely different definition at the General Assembly and a completely different definition at the Security Council. And no one knows because the media, and this is an important part of that whole thing, the media has never covered those debates at the UN. And experts on terrorism have actually not looked at the US position during these debates either. And this applies to US Congress also, where the question of the definition has been talked about over and over and over again. And it's obvious when you look at these debates that there's no agreement within Washington itself about what terrorism is. And yet those debates are not covered. And in the media, the term is used as if everyone's agreed about what terrorism is. Listening to episode 747 of Unwelcome Guests The Tyranny of Enemy Images, Part 2. I'm Robin Upton. Now, this week we're picking up with the idea of Marshall Rosenberg's that expression of one's feelings and needs is a good basis for communication and projection of one's judgments, particularly negative judgments about other people, is not a good basis for communication, not one which facilitates empathy and understanding. In other words, we're talking about enemy images. Now, we've just heard a set of remarks from Professor René Brulin, who has extensively researched the use of the word terrorism how the position has shifted, as we've heard in the 1970s. Violence against terrorists was not part of U.S. policy. So that's the first point to notice, that U.S. policy about dealing with terrorism has shifted over time. And the next point to notice is that there's no single concept about who constitutes a terrorist. There's, in fact, a multiplicity of concepts which are used at different times for different audiences. As we shall hear, the US has been energetic in trying to avoid discussions about reaching a formal definition of what actually constitutes terrorism. One person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter, 
as Ronald Reagan might say. But as we shall hear, Ronald Reagan said a lot of things about terrorism which, according to the modern discourse of the war on terror, are fairly nonsensical. They contradict the sweeping assertions made about terrorists, particularly by politicians and the corporate-controlled media, which seems to amplify and broadcast their sentiment. It seems almost incredible that a concept as highly referenced as seemingly essential to modern discussion about what goes on in the world, a concept like terrorism might not have much in the way of an empirical definition. And yet, if we'd said to people in the Middle Ages, perhaps all these witches are just figments of your imagination. Perhaps this whole concept of witchcraft is based on a few separate, unrelated circumstances and there is no overarching devil behind the whole thing. And all these books, all these treatises written by witch-finders general are just so much prejudice, fear, self-serving, whatever but not actually related to empirical fact. It's not a stretch of the imagination that if you'd stood up and said that in the Middle Ages, even as somebody who was a formerly respected pillar of the community, you might be taking your life in your hands. Well, I don't feel like I'm doing that. Uh, I'm not going out on a limb because very, very many people have pointed out that this terroristic emperor has no clothes. The choice which we're being offered, the subtitle of this episode, The Fool's Choice of Totalitarianism or Terrorism, is in fact a complete fiction. Not that there aren't bombs that go off, not that people aren't killed, but I believe more and more people are becoming clear that the choice of hand over all your information to an unelected and effectively unaccountable set of authorities or face a violent and bloody death at the hands of terrorists unknown is a fake one. We've looked in the past at Operation Gladio, how much of the terrorism during the Cold War blamed on the Soviet Union, that hotbed of terrorist financing. And that was back in the days when, if a government did something, it could be classified as terrorism. There seems to be a modern movement against that, neatly sidestepping the whole question of what if governments commit terrorist acts. Now, I don't hear a lot of corporate media And I don't often play it on this show, but there's nothing like going straight to the horse's mouth. So let's hear from Kim Howells, MP. He was chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee, which was set up in 1994 under the Intelligence Services Act. That provided formal oversight over MI5, MI6 and GCHQ, and it's appointed by MPs might seem unusual, but quite a lot of Western democracies 
until pretty recently didn't actually have a lot of formal oversight over their security services. They're set up in times of war, other great emergencies, and providing public accountabilities is not high on the priority list. It seemed to be much more important to be secret. I think this is, to a certain extent, flying in the face of modern communications technology. Any kind of structure which requires secrecy is likely to be suspect and possibly, in the words of Martin Luther King, on the wrong side of history. If you need that, then you only have to look at developments in modern technology, how much easier it is for ordinary people, unaided, to share information widely. So it's interesting in that regard that Kim Howells chips in a comment about his antipathy to leaks of information. Let's hear what he had to say in March 2015, framing a choice between increased personal information made accessible to intelligence agencies as against increased vulnerability from terrorists. Now, how much privacy are you willing to help to sacrifice to help protect you from terrorist attacks? Would you allow the security services access to your internet browser history or be happy for them to read your messages on your phone? Today, the parliamentary committee that oversees Britain's spies will say whether the police and intelligence agencies should be given more powers to monitor social media and internet traffic. But what would those powers involve? Kim Howells is a former chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee and joins us uh, from Cardiff. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Uh, uh, this is an important day today, a recommendation, and we don't know what that is at this moment. What, do, you, do you have any indication as to which direction this is going? No, I don't. I've spoken to no one on the, uh, on the committee, and, um, and, and it's good to know, actually. There have been far too many committee leaks from far too many committees, but I, I know that they've undertaken a very, very intensive um, investigation of this whole subject. They've talked to everyone they wanted to talk to, and uh, I hope very much that the uh, that now we'll have a proper debate about this, because of course it's uh, it's extremely important that uh, the terrorists, if you like, are not given an even break. In my opinion, they shouldn't be allowed to uh, communicate in ways which are closed to the intelligence services, because that will result in. Uh, in deaths and mutilations, not just in this country, but around the world. Well, always d discussions around these issues, particularly to do with terrorists and what the, uh, these agencies are doing, obviously are difficult because information, some of this information has to be held back. But what evidence is there, clear evidence that people can understand that shows that the agencies need more access to stop terrorist attacks and recently it's been to do with people traveling for example to Syria but what what is the evidence that they need more powers well uh, the evidence is that they haven't been successful enough they've been tremendously successful in in stopping major plots since the July 2005 bombings in this country when remember 52 people were murdered on the London transport system they've been tremendously successful at stopping attacks but they've only got to be unsuccessful once. They, and, and that means that they have to have access to as much intelligence as possible. Now, it's quite clear that there's another issue as well uh, running the say, uh, at the same time as this one. And that's to do with do, they, do the intelligence and security agencies have enough assets? Do they have enough money? 
because if there are thousands of terrorist uh, terrorists and terrorist sympathizers out there, how on earth do they keep an eye on them all? And this is a, this is a huge subject for debate in this country. We don't want to turn the country into, into a, some kind of version of the old East Germany with the Stasi looking at everyone. But on the other hand, the intelligence agencies are going to get it right in the neck if they miss an attack that comes, that kills people in this country, which if they'd had greater assets, more money perhaps, they'd have been able to prevent. Yes, the, the point you raised, though, is the one that a lot of people watching this and listening to you will be thinking, is that, yes, we're all on that side of the, the debate about what to do about terrorism. We want more done. But at the same time, that doesn't mean you want to think that everything you ever do can be accessed at, at the push of a button by someone in, in a monitoring centre somewhere. That is a scary proposition for people. That's a very scary proposition for people, and society's got to decide which way it's going to go on this. Um, do, you, do, you want to, do you want to feel liberated enough to allow your children to walk down the street as they've done for generations? Or are you so worried about them that you're going to demand very special protection so that they're not murdered on the streets by some religious fanatic? And, and that is, that's, that's something society's got to decide on. But... But it seems to me where the, the real madness lies is in the notion that there may be encrypted systems, there may be new forms of communication which terrorists can use, but the security and intelligence services can't use. This, this seems crazy. It, it's, as if, it's as if we're saying, well, we're only going to allow intelligence services to use technology to a certain point but if terrorists go beyond that point, well, I'm afraid there's nothing we can do about it. And that's a debate we've got to have, I'm afraid. OK. Uh, Mr. Howes, thank you very much for your time this morning. Kim Howes, former MP and ex-chair of the Intelligence and Security Committee. That report uh, will be out a little later today. Now, that might strike you as an extreme example. I chose it because it was a clear one. I couldn't really say whether it's typical or not. I'm not a heavy consumer of corporate media. I think it's pretty standard that official stories do not explicitly discriminate against the Muslim faith. That may be coming, looking at people like Trump, but I think it's much more common to have the idea of a Muslim fanatic as the subtext. And he's not also saying that terrorists are necessarily people of extreme religious persuasions, but listen to what he does actually say. Let's take another listen to a perhaps slightly less guarded comment towards the end of the interview. Are you so worried about them that you're going to demand very special protection so that they're not murdered on the streets by some religious fanatic? And, and that is, that's, that's something society's got to decide on. So, according to Kim Howells, society has to decide whether to demand very special protection so that we're not risking being murdered on the streets by a religious fanatic. Not necessarily Muslim, although he is suggesting that terrorists appear to be of religious persuasion. And it's a long time since I heard about uh, a fundamentalist atheist or a Jewish or a Buddhist extremist so that is a way of clarifying the enemy image of the Muslim without actually using the M word.
Now, short though it is, that clip does highlight the fool's choice of totalitarianism or terrorism, which is the starting point for our exploration of these enemy images. In the context of that discussion, he is suggesting extra special protection is needed to keep us safe from terrorism. Who doesn't want to be safe? And he's suggesting that extra special protection will be granted or can be granted only if the security services are allowed unfettered access to people's consumption of information, say a whole list of people's browsing history and web page downloads. Quite a lot of unquestioned assumptions there, and I wouldn't venture to say how many of those Kim Howells himself has actually explored. I'm not necessarily saying this is disingenuous talk from Mr. Howells. He may be speaking from the point of view of somebody who's thoroughly persuaded that society is full of would-be terrorists and that internet histories are a great way to catch these people. I had a look for this show on what does Wikispooks tell us about the Intelligence and Security Committee. I've written most of this page myself, actually, over the years, but it's interesting to see what has been accumulated. Apparently it's an anomalous statutory committee rather than a usual parliamentary select committee, and an attempt in July 2008 to bring it under the administration of Parliament was unsuccessful. It produces an annual report, but its work is invariably classified. So quite for whose benefit that report is, it's unclear to me. Kim Howell's predecessor, Margaret Beckett, on the chair of the committee, attended a group, Le Cercle, which is connected with terrorism and arms dealing, as we've heard in episode 713. And his successor, Malcolm Rifkin, resigned following the Cash for Access scandal. So I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say the personal integrity of these people is perhaps not outstanding. For me, I think the most remarkable piece of evidence on the page is an image, which I'm just going to have to describe, of Mohammed Sadiq Khan and Shezad Tanweer, two people who have been blamed for the London bombings in 2005. Apparently, and this is uh, all drawn from my good friends, the old corporate media, I don't want you to think they are necessarily an enemy image. I'm doing what I can to try to compliment them, but I haven't got any special knowledge. I'm not involved personally in these events. I'm compiling and processing information on the internet, a lot of which has been put there by corporate media, by probably well-intentioned journalists. I'm recalling John Pilger's assessment of professional journalism as a well-engineered machine to try to ensure a uniformity of perspective, the official, the government perspective. And yet I've got the picture about the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament. There's a picture of the 7-7 bombers and apparently MI5 had a colour photo of these two men, and according to a reporter from The Guardian in 2011, in order to try and identify this, rather than just sending an email copy of the picture 
to somebody, can you identify these people? It processed it. Firstly, it removed the color. So you have a color image and you move it into black and white. And then you cut and paste. Literally, it looks like they've done it with a pair of scissors. They cut and they also reduce the quality. So why would you reduce the quality and hand a pathetic copy of an image rather than the original image if you actually genuinely wanted somebody's help to identify the men in the image? Far from clear to me. As the Guardian noted in 2011, the committee appears not to have been aware of the original, very clear, colour photograph of both men. So this doesn't seem to me to be too much to believe that there is a committee which thinks it's in charge of the intelligence services, but yet which doesn't receive full operational details for reasons of national security. The intelligence agencies have their own reasons. It's told by smiling establishment figures, well, look, I'm in charge of this service, and I'm telling you this is all you need to know. It might just be there to rubber stamp a predetermined conclusion. Now, if it is a facade, if it's a front, then why not seek out people who are lacking the ability to perceive that themselves? So you have somebody who knows it's a fake committee, there's always a danger that they'll spill the beans. If you've got somebody who, for whatever reason, doesn't actually even notice, perhaps you have a chairman of the committee who's so worried about the fact that he might be blown up on the street by a religious fanatic that he actually has not properly questioned and not looked closely at the evidence. So it could be that the tyranny of the enemy image is so powerful in its ability to corrupt proper thinking that rational, otherwise reasonably intelligent and well-informed people reach erroneous conclusions. Now, I was going to leave my look at the corporate media at that, but then I found myself randomly reading another Guardian article. This is from 2014, and the headline is Government Agents Directly Involved, that's in quotes, in most high-profile U.S. terror plots. This is based on a report from a group called Human Rights Watch. I won't read it all out, but one point that I noticed, we hear later from Annie Brulin about a 1996 law that was brought in a year after Oklahoma City bombing relating to material support for terrorism. Well, the article notes that the plurality of convictions of terrorist-related cases in the U.S., this is a matter of a few hundred, are not for thwarted plots, but for material support charges, a broad category expanded further by the 2001 Patriot Act that permits prosecutors to pursue charges with tenuous connections to a terrorist act or group. In one such incident, the initial basis for a material support case alleging a man provided military gear to Al-Qaeda turned out to be waterproof socks in his luggage. Now, what could possess 
a prosecutor to identify socks in luggage as part of a terrorist threat. Seems to me that is more based on fear. He's a prosecutor. How do we prosecute this guy? He is, after all, a terrorist. Now, yeah, this is, in a sense, nothing very remarkable here, but it is about enemy images. The adversarial justice system is explicitly based upon the idea that there's good guys and bad guys, and punishment sentences are about handing people what is their due. And Marshall Rosenberg, I think, quite elegantly criticizes all of this as being a counterproductive way to try to administer this thing called justice, which we think we would be well advised to not let the U.S. Justice Department claim a monopoly upon. Now, another statistic about these terrorist cases, 30% of them involve informants who played a, quote, active role, unquote, in incubating plots leading to arrest. So it notes that entrapment is pretty difficult to prove. Another point is that in terrorist cases, the usual laws about laws don't seem to apply. So it gives an example of defendant Ahmed Omar Abu Ali, who was held in solitary confinement for five years before his trial. He says he was tortured while he was in Saudi Arabian jail, and his confession because it was a terrorist case alleged, then this was allowable evidence. Now, we'll read the last page of this report, because I think it's very cogent to the topic of enemy images. I quote, Another implication of the law enforcement tactic cited the report is a deepening alienation of American Muslims from a government that publicly insists it needs their support to head off extremism, but secretly deploys informants to infiltrate mosques and community centres. Quote, The best way to prevent violent extremism inspired by violent jihadists is to work with the Muslim American community, which has consistently rejected terrorism, to identify signs of radicalization and partner with law enforcement when an individual is drifting towards violence. And these partnerships can only work when we recognize that Muslims are a fundamental part of the American family. Unquote. Obama said in a high-profile 2013 speech. Yet, the Obama administration has needed to purge Islamophobic training materials from FBI counterterrorism, which sparked deep suspicion in U.S. Muslim communities. It's now considering a review of similar material in the intelligence community after a document leaked by Edward Snowden used the slur Mohammed Raghead as a placeholder for Muslims. Unquote. So there's multiple backstories here. This idea about violent extremism as a replacement for terrorism. We've looked at the notion about radicalization as an ongoing narrative to promote internet censorship. What we're not, according to this public narrative, is in any shape or form prejudiced against Muslims. Now, recalling that in 30% of the post-9-11 terrorist cases, 
there's at least one informant who played a quote active role unquote in incubating the terrorist plots. I can quite see how law enforcement operatives or informants might wish to partner with impressionable young people. I can see that there's a commercial value in knowing the names and addresses and histories, the contact details of people who can be depicted as drifting towards radical or violent action. As the public face, the high-profile speech, as we heard from the very beginning, this word terrorism is used in multiple contexts. It's associated with an enemy image. How to make that very clear? Well, a group of white American good old boys want to make that clear. Might very well use a phrase such as Mohammed Raghead. If you're going to kill people, if you're going to plot how to blow them up and then say they were suicide bombers. How better to do that than by designating them clearly as bad guys. Establish an enemy image as a way of stemming moral anxiety about the task. So the multiple lives of this word terrorism is one of the reasons why I'm wanting to avoid it. Let's be clear on what's actually happening Let's not infer things from the colour of people's skin, from their names or their religion. I suggest we would do well to stick to the facts, ditch the enemy image of the terrorist. If we're going to ditch the word terrorist, there's a whole raft of legislation that goes along with that. Well, if we haven't properly defined what a terrorist is, and certainly at the international level, this is all pretty suspect stuff, in my opinion, anyway. At a national level, I think we've got no shortage of laws for dealing with offenders. As an illustration of the power of enemy images to truncate thinking, I teach English here in Bangladesh, and one of my former students told me firsthand of his first encounter as a freshman in a US college with his roommate who asked him nervously on seeing his skin colour are you from Islam and had to be disabused of the notion that Islam was a country as opposed of course to a religion and that I think is very common pairing uh, a powerful enemy image reinforced by heaven knows how many hours in front of a television reporting about suspected terrorists, an enemy image associated with lack of information. Perhaps it's because I live in a country where there's about a 90% Muslim population. I can't see these people as violent. These are the people who surround me. I could drift off to talking about money and how our economic system poses that the world is made up of people who are inimical to one another, surrounded by enemies in competition. But no, we're going to keep the focus on this word terrorism and its ability to inspire fear correlated with a lack of information. Now that's really what I'm trying to get at. My core focus in this episode is, are we allowing our natural tendency for fear, we have 
whole set of body systems about getting out of extreme danger, about anxiety, adrenaline. Are we allowing something that we are biologically predisposed to, fear, to cloud our judgment? I believe there's a very small, very, very small number of people deliberately manipulating large numbers of people with this idea of terrorism. Police are looking into whether the killing is terror-related. What on earth does that mean? I've, I've seen it several times. If one person kills another person, that's probably pretty terrifying for the person on the receiving end. What does it mean to say the killing was not terror-related? I think these are perhaps not for regular unwelcome guest listeners, but for a lot of people, points where it's worth stopping to think and where this is such a part of everyday corporate media discourse that the fact that it seems to lack any kind of clear empirical meaning, what's this actually talking about, may be obscured. Now, that's at least enough from me uh, let's hear Professor René Brulin sharing details of his research into the use of the word terrorism. Now, I've done what I can with this interview. It was over Skype, and René Brulin is not a native speaker. Uh, there are occasions where his accent I found quite difficult to follow, but I've edited it. The original, of course, I shall link to from this show's webpage on welcomeguest.net slash 747. Uh, many thanks to Palestine Studies TV for this interview and publishing it on YouTube. It was recorded in 2012. I'll be talking to Rémi Brulin, a research fellow at New York University, about the concept of terrorism and its use in the Israeli-Palestinian context. Rémi, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Now, with the current military escalation against the Gaza Strip, there's been a lot of talk in the mainstream media about terrorism. Has that conversation been reflective of the way the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is usually handled? Yeah, the short answer would be would be yes, I think. I want to note, however, that there, there might be some improvement or change in how the, the mainstream media is starting to cover the conflict. One possible case in point could be the program Apricris Ace that uh, uh, took place was uh, aired uh, in, on Sunday morning uh, on MSNBC, where for probably one of the very first times you had several Palestinian voices actually on the set and uh, so giving a, a different perspective on conflicts. So I, I felt like this was new. Um, however, I'm not sure that um, this can be said about the, the way in which the media has covered the issue of terrorism itself. This still remains to me the one point about the conflict about which the media used the term terrorism and yet absolutely, completely silent about what it means, uh, how it is defined, who uses the term in what ways, and what are the arguments, all sides. I think there was something interesting that happened. The Prime Minister of Turkey, Erdogan, uh, actually called 
Israel a terrorist state. It was reported in the media, and something that was interesting is how Matthew Lee from AP actually asked a spokesperson for the, the Obama administration to respond and to probably condemn Erdogan. And so there was this interesting exchange where at the end, the spokesperson actually said that, of course, the, the U.S. disagreed and thought it was not helpful. At the same time, Senator McCain and Senator Graham, Republicans both, issued a statement also saying that they regretted what the Turkish prime minister said. And I have the, the statement in front of me, and they start by saying, we regret that the prime minister of Turkey referred to Israel today as a terrorist state, quote-unquote. Israel has the same sovereign right as every country to defend itself, and no government could be expected to remain passive under the daily barrage of rockets, etc. And then they add, this challenge should be familiar to Turkey, which has been a victim of terrorism itself. To me, this response is interesting because they don't really say anything about whether Israel is a terrorist state there, or rather, if this is what they're saying. Their argument is basically that you cannot be involved in terrorism if what you're doing is defending yourself against terrorism, which, of course, as an argument, makes no sense. It is an argument that basically confuses two issues. The issues, if we talk in international law terms or in just war theory terms, you have two concepts, right? You have use ad bellum, the, the right to go to war and use in below the rights when you're fighting, when you're in, in war. Michael Walzer, author of uh, Justin and Just Wars, professor, talks about it as one is an adjective, you fight a just war, and one is an adverb, you fight justly. And the two are completely separate. What McCain and Graham here are saying is confusing the two because it's obvious talk about war, for example, both sides can be committing war crimes. Both can be fighting unjustly, the adverb. And so in the case of terrorism, it is also obvious, or it should be, that both sides can be terrorists using terrorism. And it, of course, makes no sense to say I'm not a terrorist because I'm fighting against the terrorists. It's obvious because the other side can say that. And of course, historically, the other side has said that. Arab states or the Palestinians, many other others, the ANC of fighting South Africa, they've all said at some point that they're not terrorists because they're fighting the terrorists. And obviously when they use that argument, it's an argument that we reject and we're right to reject it. So the answer here given by McCain and Graham really makes little sense, but what's more important probably is that this is this is where the, the debate on the issue stops. Right. It's further than that. And in the media, uh, th this was the end of it. Because it's, it's taken as obvious that it's a crazy idea to think of Israel as using terrorism. Well, let's, let's focus a little bit on the U.S. for a while. Can you speak about how historically the U.S. government has used the term terrorism, specifically in this Israeli-Palestinian context? So, um here, I think something that's important is to, when we're talking about the, the U.S. government, is to sort of separate in branches. Something that I've done a lot of research about is 
trying to figure out when the discourse on terrorism or when the word terrorism starts being used in presidential discourse, right? And, and it's easy to do now, today, something that was not the case maybe 10 years ago, because we have those databases online and so we can look for this. And what you find is that actually up until Reagan, uh, or simplify, the, the word terrorism is basically not used by American presidents, right? Uh, Carter uses it uh, a lot during the last year and a half of his term, but it's only about the hostage crisis in Iran. In that sense, there is no discourse on terrorism, as in terrorism itself is not presented or framed as a threat. It's only about Iran and, and that act of terrorism. If, if you go back, I go in more detail about this in, a, in an interview that I did with Greenwald on Salon a couple of years ago. Uh, but very quickly, even if you look at the attacks by the Palestinians on Israeli athletes uh, at Munich in 72 during the Olympic Games, this is the obvious example of terrorism that we can think of when we think about the conflict. And yet at the time, Nixon, so he's president at the time, he does not use the term terrorism to talk about Munich. He calls them international outlaws. He calls them thugs. Of course, he, the, the act is, is rightly described as despicable, illegal and everything. But it does not naturally refer to it as an act of terrorism. In the same way, you had hijackings throughout the 60s up and into the 70s. The very first president to ever use the term terrorism to refer to an act against uh, civil aviation is, again, Nixon in March of 72, which is very late in the day, when he gives his, uh, a speech presenting the creation of the air marshals. It's uh, oddly on, on September 11, 1970, which is odd. He talks about hijackings and bombings of civilian airplanes. Not once does he call it terrorism. So what, what's important to remember when you look back on, on, on that history is that terrorism is an umbrella term. What it does is that it puts all those acts together and say that those acts form one threat and that it's just one threat and the same threat. This is not something that was uh, felt as natural or, or that, that American presidents felt like they needed to do up until the 80s and Reagan, basically. I'm not saying here, because it would be historically profoundly inaccurate, that the term did not exist before. Of course, in the 60s and the 70s, Israel, for example, used the term all the time to refer to uses of force by Palestinians or pro-Palestinian groups. Attacks in, 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 and it's important to, to mention that, to refer to attacks against civilian targets, but also against military targets. In the Israeli discourse, there is no difference between the two. What was the turning point in the 80s then that made the discourse change? When you go back and you look at the first two or three years of the Reagan term, what's odds in retrospect is that he's actually not really using the term to refer to events in the Middle East. What he's really referring to is events in Central America. And when he's talking about terrorism, he's mostly talking about the FMLN in El Salvador 
and saying that the U.S. should give military aid to the Salvadoran regime so that they can fight terrorism. It's mostly where it is focused. Um, if there is one point where we can say that when it comes to the presidential discourse, things do change, it's with the attack uh, against the U.S. Marines stationed in Beirut in October of 83. What's fascinating when you go back is that since the, the, um, the beginning of, uh, of the crisis between Israel and Lebanon, uh, if we can talk about a specific beginning, let's say June of 81, well, when we're talking about Beirut and, and the headquarters uh, of the PLO that are bombed in June of, of 81, Israel, of course, is saying that what they're going after is the headquarters of this big terrorist organization that is the PLO and that they go against the terrorist infrastructure of the PLO. But the U.S. is not saying that. At least Reagan does not say that. He mentions terrorism a couple times when talking about Israel and what Israel is doing once it invades Lebanon one year later in June of 82. But that's it. So from June 82 to October 83, maybe a couple mentions of terrorism. So when he talks about Israel and Lebanon, this is not about terrorism. It's about something else. And suddenly, as soon as the U.S. Marines are attacked and bombed, and 250 of them are killed by a truck bomb, uh, suddenly it becomes about terrorism, meaning that the U.S. presence is about terrorism. The U.S. objectives become about fighting terrorism and defeating the terrorists. And at the same time, retroactively, in hindsight, starts talking about the reason why Israel invaded a year earlier in 82, as, of course, having been about fighting the terrorists, right? So suddenly, retroactively, what happened a year before is presented as, of course, obviously having been about fighting terrorism. And, and then at the same time, we are in October of 83, the U.S. invades Grenada, and you have Korean, I think, airplane that is downed by the Soviet Union. It's an accident, but... Reagan calls it an act of terrorism, and he has this big discourse in late 83 when he says that all these things are, happen, are happening thousands of miles apart, one from the other, but they're all part of the same big threat, the threat of international terrorism. And at the heart of this threat of international terrorism is, of course, the Soviet Union. We're in the middle of the Cold War, and its allies, and amongst its allies, you have Arab states, and you have the Central American states like uh, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua and Cuba. And so suddenly you have this huge threat. It's the same threat. They're all the same. They're all the terrorists, and we have to fight the terrorists. So that, that's really the turning point. And, but something that's important, to, again, is that in a way what, what the U.S. is doing from uh, late 83 onwards is incorporate or is take the Israeli discourse. Right, and, and here the something that's of course interesting is the role that an organization like the Jonathan Institute, which um, is called the Jonathan, Jonathan Institute, it's an Israeli organization called Jonathan after Benjamin Netanyahu's brother who was killed during the the raid at Antebe in '76. So member of the Israeli special forces, and. The objective of this Jonathan Institute, they have conferences about terrorism 
the first big conference takes place in 79 in Jerusalem, and the second one takes place in Washington in 84. And the objective stated explicitly is to convince the rest of the world, the West, or, or the civilized world, as they, they call it, that there is a threat, that it's the threat that, that um, Israel has been fighting against is also a threat that the whole Western world should fight against. I have a quotation from the Jonathan Institute, if you want. In 79, Netanyahu gave the objective of the Jonathan Institute's conference in Jerusalem as being to focus public attention on the real nature of international terrorism, on the threat that it poses to all democratic societies, and on the measures necessary for defeating the forces of terror. And in 84, the second conference, this time it takes place in Washington, reminds everyone that a few years before the, the first conference, exposed for the first time the full involvement of states in international terrorism and the centrality of the Soviet Union and the PLO in fomenting and spreading terrorism. But he adds, though the conference helped focus the attention of influential circles in the West on the real nature of the terrorist threat, this was not enough. What was still lacking was a coherent and united international response. To advocate such a united policy and to suggest what it might consist of is the principal objective of the Washington Conference. And indeed, during that second conference in 84, most of the emphasis is going to be on the question of how to respond to international terrorism, and more specifically on the question of the use of force, preemptively or preventively, against terrorism. And of course, uh, most, if not all, of, of the participants at the conference, and this includes officials of the Reagan administration, you have George Schultz, who is the Secretary of State at the time, you have uh, Jane Kirkpatrick, who is the U.S. ambassador at the U.N. at the time, and many other American officials and Israeli officials all come on the side of, of course, the necessity of the West having what they call moral clarity and pushing aside what they call moral equivalency, being very clear about who the, the, the terrorists are and who the enemy are, uh, is and how serious the threat is. And they all come on the side of the use of force against international terrorism. And some of them, in, in fact, explicitly give the invasion of Lebanon as the example that the West should follow in fighting international terrorism. This is at the end of the first term during the Reagan administration. At the time, there are internal debates inside the Reagan administration about the morality and the legality of using force against terrorism. This is not something that everyone agrees on. Within the Reagan administration, you have debates broadly explained between, on one side, Schultz and the State Department, on the other side, the DOD and Weinberger. And the DOD is, is reluctant to actually use force against terrorism. They don't think it's a serious threat, and they're bothered by the morality of it. And Reagan himself, it, it's unclear where he is on, on this issue, but there are several quotes where you can really see how far we've gone today when we talk about the use of force against terrorism. Reagan in November 27th, 84, to give you the, the background, 
in late January 81, Reagan is welcoming back the, the American hostages from Tehran. And he gives a, a famous speech where he, he promises the American people that the terrorists will be met with swift retribution. And so throughout his, um, his first and then his second term, journalists are going to be asking, when are we going to see journalists or crit critics of the administration from the right uh, are going to be asking, when are we going to see those swift retributions? Because, of course, uh, you have hostages in Beirut and other acts of terrorism all over the place, and the U.S. is not using force. And so many times Reagan actually has to answer those questions. And this is how he answers. November 27th, 84. You've got to be able to get some evidence as to where are the bases from whence come these terrorists that you could strike at. At the same time, you have to recognize that you don't want to just carelessly go out and maybe kill innocent people. Then you're as bad as the terrorists. A few weeks later, that's January 14th, 85, right now the terrorists, one of the things that has kept us from retaliation is the difficulty in getting definite information enough as to who they are and where they are that you do not risk killing doing the same thing they're doing, killing innocent people in an effort to get at them. Same thing in February, where he clearly says that if you do that, you're a terrorist. Same thing in June, where he again says that if you use force and kill a lot of innocents and it's indiscriminate, you're a terrorist too. And of course, that takes us back to the argument, if you want to call it that, uh, that's put forward by McCain and Graham in their statement. You can use the, the words of Ronald, Ronald Reagan to show very clearly that you can be a terrorist when you're fighting the terrorist, if the, the means that you use are fully indiscriminate. And it's striking to me that to be critical, say, of Israel's actions today in Gaza, you only have to go back to Reagan and quote him. And it's difficult to not reach the conclusion that, at least in some respects, in, in certain specific cases of certain specific strikes, Israel is using means that Reagan would have called terrorism. And, and there's the last one that's interesting also on the issue of uh, targeted killings or target, targeted assassinations. Of course, only 10 years ago, this was not U.S. official policy. You only need to go back to just before 9-11 to find Democrats being extremely critical of the idea of a targeted killing when used by Israel and, re and Republicans being critical of it up to basically August of 2001. This is something that the U.S. rejects. And this is what Reagan said in January of 86. Senator Mettenbaum said that the U.S. should be thinking seriously about assassinating Muhammad Gaddafi. And so Reagan was asked about what he thought, and he said, you don't join them at their level. Terrorism in response to terrorism is not the answer. It is terrorism that is the evil. There is a moral issue involved here. Which is a, a, a great quote because it reminds us that it is terrorism itself that is the evil. Meaning that the only way that that stands against terrorism is morally principled is if we apply it to all sides. Which is pretty obvious, but that makes very clear that a statement such as the one by McCain and Graham doesn't answer any of the big questions. 
And it shows, of course, how far the terms of the debate have evolved. I would say, actually, yes, language evolves. Yes, politicians exploit events. They react to what happens. But deep politicians are agents of change. So if it's not acceptable to use violence in the 1970s, it might not be coincidental that now we see violence used on a regular basis, guns paraded up and down the cities of western capitals, where previously this would not have been easy to contemplate. Now, quick break for change of pace. This is from Monty Python's Flying Circus. Well, I've been a hunter all my life. I love animals. That's why I like to kill them. Good day, Roy. Spin, a tough, fearless backwoodsman who have chosen to live in a violent, unrelenting world of nature's creatures where only the fittest survive. Today, they are off to hunt mosquitoes. <laughs> Mosquito is a clever little bastard. You can track him for days and days until you really get to know him like a friend. He knows you're there, and you know he's there. It's a game of wits. You hate him, then you respect him, then you kill him. Suddenly, he spots the mosquito thereafter. rely on the skills they have learned from a lifetime's hunting. Hank gauges the wind. Roy examines the mosquito's spore. Then... more dangerous than a wounded mosquito. But the hunt is not over. With well-practiced skill, Hank skins the mosquito. The wings of a fully grown male mosquito can fetch anything up to 0.8 of a penny in the open market. The long day is over, and it's back to base camp for a night's rest. Here, surrounded by their trophies, Roy and Hank prepare for a much tougher ordeal, a moth hunt. Well, I follow the moth in the helicopter to lure it away from the flowers, and then Roy comes along in the Lockheed Starfighter and attacks it with air-to-air missiles. A lot of people have asked us why we don't use fly spray. Well, where's the sport in that? For Roy, sport is everything. Ever since he lost his left arm battling with an ant, Roy has risked his life in the pursuit of tiny creatures. But it's not all work, and for relaxation, they like nothing more than a day's fishing. <laughs> Wherever there is a challenge, Hank and Roy Spim will be there, ready to carry on the primordial struggle between man and inoffensive tiny insects. 